0: Hello and welcome to this podcast. I am Charlie Pickles. I edit the capitalism theme at Unheard. And I am delighted to say I am joined by Michael Jacobs uh, for a conversation about rethinking capitalism. Michael is the director of the IPPR's Economic Justice Commission, uh, an academic, an economist, um, also a former member of the Council of Economic Advisers at the Treasury. um, And then from 2007 to 2010, I think, uh, was a special advisor to the UK Prime Minister. So welcome, Michael. Do you want to just give us a couple of sentences on what the Commission is?
1: Yes, the IPPR Commission on Economic Justice is a two-year inquiry into the challenges facing the UK economy and what we could do about them. Uh, The commissioners are drawn from all walks of British life, Uh, some of them are business people, finance, trade unions, academia, civil society. Uh, We we produced an interim report called Time for Change, a new vision for the British economy last September and we're now working towards our final report which will come out this coming September.
0: And so, I mean that kind of links into a couple of the areas that we're going to discuss today. So firstly, the fact that um, we clearly are at a point in time where we need to reconsider the capitalist model that we have um, and look to make it I guess a fairer model a model that works for all Um, but also in the commission as you say you've got a wide range of people and that sort of um, I guess links to the fact that it feels like we're coming to a moment in time where maybe there's a bit of a paradigm shift maybe there's a kind of consensus building that actually changes needed so we're going to come back to that but the meat of our discussion is going to be focused around the book that you co-edited called Rethinking Capitalism. Um, but before we go into the detail of that, it's probably just worth mentioning for our listeners that probably you and I come from a slightly different political uh, angle. So, um, Michael, I think it's fair to say you come from the left. Is that, is that, that fair? That is absolutely yeah. fair to say. Um, And the Prime Minister that you were a special advisor to was Gordon Brown, so very much on the left. Uh, Whereas I probably come more from, I'm going to put in centre, but centre-right, nonetheless. And we had an interesting chat a few weeks ago where we realised that actually there wasn't much of a gap between the way we were thinking about capitalism, which sort of led on to this idea that perhaps we are at a moment in time where sort of the politics is almost becoming a bit irrelevant because the challenge is so great um, that people are coming together in their thinking. So... Your book, Rethinking Capitalism, um, is a series of essays by the sort of great and the good, some some incredible academics who have contributed their thinking to the problem. Um, And I guess the kind of golden thread, if you like, that's running through it is this idea that the economics profession um, is not in a place to properly understand what is going on in modern capitalism. And indeed, the economic orthodoxies are preventing us from thinking clearly about what some of the solutions to today's challenges are. Is that a fair characterization?
1: Yes I think we need to be a little bit careful about talking about the economics profession and economists because there are many of them and they don't all think alike. So it's much more in a sense about as you put it the orthodoxy in economics and in particular in economic policy making and economic commentary One of the reactions to the book has been from economists who say you really need to be careful about describing economists as if even there were a majority of them who all think the same thing. Um, But I think it is true to say that over the last 30 years or so, there has been a kind of dominant way of thinking about the economy, which has been drawn from academic economics and which has influenced the way debate has occurred about the economy and in particular policy towards the economy. And it's that orthodoxy that we challenge in the book.
0: And I mean, I, I take your point that not all economists are the same. But nonetheless, I mean, to the man or woman on the street, you know, we had this massive financial crash that nobody really seemed to see coming. We're in a situation now where, as you, you know, draw out very clearly in the book, um, economics isn't in its purest sense isn't seeming to work for the ordinary person you know we've got stagnating wages you know we've got um, a sort of almost an absence of faith in the capitalist model that actually it can deliver prosperity and so there does seem to be at least a bit of a vacuum in in how we move away from the orthodoxies you've described and start thinking more about how we change the model and so In your introduction to the book, you identify three kind of core challenges, if we can call them that, currently facing capitalism. Um, The first one is weak and uh, unstable growth. The second is stagnant living standards uh, and increasing inequality. And the third is climate change and environmental risk. Now, I want today for our listeners to focus on the first two, uh, but I will just give you an opportunity, as I know, kind of, you know, you are one of the leading environmental economists in the country. So for me to sort of say we're not not going to talk very much about that, it's probably a bit unfair. So just a moment to say, kind of, how does the climate change and the environmental risk question fit into this overarching challenge that capitalism is facing?
1: Well, I I think the uh, the the crucial point you've made, which the book makes is that we have, in a sense, a twin crises. We have cri- a crisis of capitalism and the uh, the outcomes that it's now generating um, and then we have the crisis of economics in understanding that and it is both of these things that we point to as marking uh, a point of change when we really need to look again at what capitalism is doing and then we need to look at the way we understand it in economics. Um, and that comes out in these three uh, big challenges. So um, the financial crisis, a crisis of, uh, of the financial system which um, uh, almost destroyed uh, Western economies was a problem primarily in capitalism but it was a problem for economics because as you say by and large the economics profession did not understand, it wasn't just that they didn't predict it, they didn't understand why it had happened, they didn't have the tools to do so. Similarly if you look at inequality and and stagnant living standards, living standards in the UK have been stagnant now for just over a decade, in the US for over 30 years and economists don't properly understand this and the solutions that they've been providing to try and improve living standards haven't worked and austerity I'm afraid you know hasn't worked. Um, And we have a productivity problem which contributes to low wages which economists would admit they don't fully understand and the environmental crisis in a sense is another one of those which is in a way is even deeper because many economists have not even tried to understand the environment, they haven't really seen the natural environment as part of the economy, which it is. All resources come from the natural environment, they all go back to the natural environment, often as pollution. And so not understanding this fundamental crisis that we now have of climate change, and we're now realising of course there's more than that, there's plastics pollution, there's air quality, there's species loss and habitat loss and so on, is a failure too of economics to understand the way in which an economy works. So it's these twin crises of the outcomes of our capitalist economy as it's structured now, and of the economics with which we understand it that we wanted to address in the book.
0: And so if, um, I guess, you know, one of the outcomes being this idea of, of kind of, you know, very weak growth, and you point out um, rightly that, you know, we've actually seen that happening pre-financial crisis. I mean, we often sort of focus on the financial crisis as the point in time at which suddenly capitalism started failing, and, and that's really not true. Most of the um, Most of the sort of dire outcomes that we perceive as being or we attribute to the financial crash actually were evident well before that you know in some instances sort of several decades and so um we had weak and unstable growth pre-crash one of the things that we have been focusing on here at unheard is the sort of the financialization of the economy and by that i guess what we mean is is it's become much more focused on money and shares and kind of quarterly earnings and that kind of stuff what role do you think that has played in our you know kind of stuttering
1: growth? I think financialisation is actually a really important feature of the way capitalist economies now run and the outcomes that they're generating. Over the last forty years, you've had a really marked change in the distribution of national income between the 1940s and the 70s, an increasing proportion of national income went to labour, to wages and salaries, to ordinary people, because that's how most of us get paid. Um, But since the 1970s, an increasing proportion has been going to capital, that is into the returns to shareholders, the returns to wealth, and a declining share to wages and salaries. Um, And that has shifted the nature of our growth path. So we're getting less growth generated from consumption, from uh, what ordinary people spend in the economy, and more from financial activity, um, and depending on the spending of wealthy people who tend to spend less in the economy. So there's a, a structural shift has gone on and attached to that has been the uh, problem of investment. More and more of the returns to companies are being distributed to their shareholders. So there's been a rise in in in. In profits, and then more and more of that has gone to the shareholders rather than being reinvested. So you've now got the rather extraordinary situation where British companies as a whole are net savers in the economy. What companies used to do was take other people's. Uh, savings and they used to borrow in order to invest and now companies are saving money and they're giving more and more of it back to their shareholders as dividends and in share buybacks and so on and that has reduced the investment rate which of course reduces the overall growth rate over the long run in the economy and there's been less innovation because of that because that's an investment function and so on so that's a really crucial way in which capitalism has changed and is generating some of the adverse uh, results we've seen.
0: And so just to put the I guess, opposite perspective, you know, some people would argue, look, the shareholders, are the people that are risking their capital, you know, they are the owners of the business. Is it not right? Is it not fair that actually they get a good return on that investment that they've made? And and therefore, you know, some form of inequality in the sense that, you know, wealth is being distributed back to the owners, the risk takers might be a, an acceptable outcome?
1: Well, clearly, you need to return uh, money back to shareholders in dividends. Uh, many of them are pension pension holders um, uh, uh, who need money for their pensions. So it's the question of the balance of these things and whether the balance has gone too far towards shareholders and away from workers. So another ph- phenomenon that we've seen developing, in particular in the last 10 years, but, but for a longer period, is a, a much more flexible or casualised labour market. So more and more people work in uh, in jobs that don't have the kind of um, uh, strong conditions of work that uh, used to be seen, many of them now on zero-hours contracts or part-time contracts, uh, or in other ways they don't have Uh, rights. Um, They don't belong to unions in the way that they once would have done and that has reduced their bargaining power, has reduced wages and yes that gives you flexibility but it also means that you don't have the the, uh, consumption that goes with those wages and so we've not been sustaining demand in the economy in the way that we would have done because of these structural features. And This is why it's really important to understand capitalism as a system and the way that it works and to make sure that the economics with which you understand it is really getting to grips with the new forms of company, the new forms of financial markets, the new forms of labour market and an overly simplistic economics sometimes just doesn't do that and that's why many of the prescriptions that have been given by economic policy makers haven't worked because we've got a different form of economy and that requires a different form of economics.
0: And and one of the, I guess, the underpinning challenges uh, to which actually you can probably link a a lot of these issues that you're talking about is this kind of growth of short-termism within. well actually government as well but 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 principally uh, in corporates and you know it is incredibly striking uh, that we have seen over particularly the last few decades this real focus on quarterly earnings this this kind of Um, almost obsession with where the uh, stock share price is at um, and that that has driven some of the perverse behaviour that you've been talking about. So both in terms of, I guess, not investing in the labour force, not not investing in skills and and your staff, um, but also in things like the share buyback. So this is the idea that companies um, actually literally buy back their own shares, which gives a temporary short-term boost to their uh, earnings reports. How far is short termism something, though, that we can actually tackle?
1: Well, it's difficult in a in a capitalist economy to deal with the behaviours of many different shareholders and many different company boards. There are things, I think, though, you can do, and the IPPR Commission is looking at some of these. So, for example, um, if you put workers on boards, I think you'd get different decisions being made by boards. The interesting thing about the theory of shareholding is the shareholders were meant to be the owners. But, in fact, if you look at the way shares are now held, not very many of the people who hold those shares would claim they were owners at all. Some of them are holding their shares for milliseconds seconds in, in uh, high-frequency trading. And many of the people who hold those shares regard them simply as ways of earning uh, uh, short-term returns and not as uh, investments in a company. And the workers probably have much more investment of their own in the company now than the shareholders and many of the shareholders do so the case for putting workers on boards is actually one about are you getting the balance of interest right in the decision-making in the companies and the experience of the many countries around the world which have shareholders uh, have board members who include workers is that you get you tend to get longer term thinking because those workers do bring a kind of longer term interest, in, uh, uh, interest in the company from the position of the but workforce. D- but do you
0: think that's actually because there are workers on the board or do you think that's because the capitalist model, um, so take somewhere like Germany which is often the country that is put forward um, both as the example of workers on board um, but also it just has a fundamentally different approach to capitalism I and mean, you can see that in their vocational training, uh, you can see that in actually um, low lower CEO pay, low, lower executive pay. You know, there's there's an awful lot of examples of where the culture is different. I mean, how much really is sticking a worker or two on a board going to solve not. It's
1: not, a, it's not a single solution, but you need multiple solutions. So I think one of the things here is that we need to be very... Um, uh, careful not to think there are single solutions to these things I think that's one of them um, another one that you mentioned uh, is uh, uh, in Germany is uh, very typically companies have uh, a stock of shareholders who are long-term shareholders and who want to be um, uh, who want their investments over a long period and we tend not to have those uh, block holders in the British system um, we also have banks in Germany which are much more engaged in their companies often regional banks um, uh, which we don't have here and so on so there's a whole variety range of things which um, in a sense would give you a, um, a longer term thinking outlook within companies within the financial sector that would help build investment over the long term and you can see this in the way German investment patterns run and, and so on so there's a lot to learn from from other countries although in, in you know you can't simply borrow uh, different cultures from other places
0: and I mean investment is obviously a key factor in delivering um, growth, which we want to see. Um, and I was struck by the essay in the book um, by Mariana Mazakuta about uh, the role of the state in delivering innovation. So actually, if we want, you know, real growth, kind of dynamic growth, then we need innovation within the uh, economy. And Effectively, what she's describing is a sort of decline in uh, investment and the proportion of of R&D that that comes from the state has been consistently declining in most countries, she says, particularly notably in America and the UK. But what I was struck by was her point that um, we see uh innovative investment by the state as something which kind of is supposed to sort of you know give a boost if you like to the rate of innovation but actually what she's saying is it's not just the rate of innovation but also the direction um, can you just explain a little bit about i guess the role of the state with innovation and where some of those tensions might be
1: um, yes, so Mariana Mazzucato's uh, um, work, not just the chapter she has in this book, but her other book, um, The Entrepreneurial State, um, has brought to light a, something which orthodox, e- orthodox economics has not really recognised, which is how important the state has been in developing new inventions and innovations. There is a kind of model, I think, in many economists' heads, which is that um, innovation occurs because scientists or people in companies kind of have good ideas, um, and then it's all uh, brought from within the private sector system. And
0: should sort of get out the way one of the, s- the state has
1: not been involved and shouldn't be involved yep. and she points out that if you look at the iphone all the N- a smart technologies that make an iPhone an iPhone, the touchscreen, the Siri system, um, the, internet. Uh, the internet itself, were all developed with state support in the United States, often out of defense industry spending originally um, or elsewhere in publicly funded research and development. And, and her empirical argument is we've not really understood how involved the state has been. And she then makes the prescriptive argument, which is something we're also exploring on the IPPR Commission on Economic Justice, which is Um, What can the state do to push innovation in directions that will not just stimulate growth in general, but growth of a good kind? We have massive challenges. One of the things we put in the interim report of the Commission was we have a huge demographic challenge. We have an aging population that is going to take up increasing resources from health and social care. We have a huge environmental challenge, climate change, uh, other environmental problems. Um, We have challenges in mobility, uh, of utilizing digital technologies for good, AI and robotics and so on. Why don't we particularly push government spending into those areas where there are big social challenges, where we know we need to solve them, in order to not just to drive generalised growth, but the specific growth in areas that um, uh, uh, where we, we we need to uh, come up with solutions. And so she would like a more active state, what she calls quite cleverly an entrepreneurial state, um, to help direct investments into, that, into those fields. They would still be largely private sector investments. This is not about having state companies doing it, but it's about being smarter in the way we direct state spending to help research and development. Uh, in the economy.
0: And I guess it's particularly important given what we were just talking about around short-termism and and the kind of chasing of quarterly um, figures uh, within the private sector because, you know, Innovation is about risk and, it, and it's not a guaranteed return on the investment that you make. And so, you know, I thought one of the great phrases she uses is this concept of patient capital. So actually the state is, at least at the moment, more able to put in that patient capital to take the risk, to, to risk failure. Um, whereas a lot of the at least uh, publicly listed private sector companies are, are not willing to do that. So, um, you know, kind of all the different issues kind of coming back and feeding into each other. I guess I'd just like to spend a moment then on the idea around inequality um, and you know, which obviously directly links to declining living standards for many ordinary or typical um, citizens, uh, particularly in Anglo-Saxon countries, um, but more broadly. Um, and it's something actually that we at Unheard have done quite a bit on, particularly around wealth inequality. But, you know, when you look at the figures both for income inequality and wealth inequality, um, the amount of money or assets that are going to slash owned by the top one or even 0.1% is staggering, and you know, I guess some would say, well, that's the capitalist model. You know, if you have a system which is about saying, you know, people work hard, people use their talent, ingenuity, etc., and they will be rewarded. And if you don't, you're not, and therefore, you know, there's a kind of nat- natural divergence. But I mean, in reality, that's not how it's working. And what we're seeing is is a great deal of, in you know, to use a kind of jargon, rent seeking. Can you just sort of unpack a little bit how we've got to this point where there are such extremes of inequality?
1: The uh, This is a really good question because um, this has been a gradual accretion. It is one of the functions of a, of a shareholder model is that more and more of the profits that have been generated have been going to a declining number of people. So, shareholding has narrowed rather than uh, grown. Um, and uh, as Piketty, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, has said, if you look at the growth rates um, of the economy as a whole and you compare them with the growth rates of the returns to capital, the latter are larger, which means that um, you will get an increasing concentration of wealth. So, one of the things we've really got to do do is to spread that wealth so that more people are sharing in the returns uh, to capital and to wealth holding. So that seems to to us on the Commission to be a particularly important part of the policy agenda, to get wealth spread more widely. And that's one of the reasons why um, this argument is not an old left-right argument, because there are plenty of people on the right who would also like to see wealth spread more widely, because they'd like to see more people with a stake in capitalism and capital. Um, So I think that's going to be a crucial part of of the future agenda. Um, and one which can uh, potentially achieve quite wide consensus.
0: And also, I think, um, I guess, coming from the uh, the right, this idea that. You know what What we have is not a fair capitalist model anyway so to come back to this concept of rent seeking i was struck again by one of the chapters in your book by uh, stiglitz who was talking about um this idea that you know the, the the kind of link if you like between performance and pay at the executive level is just entirely broken so you know he, he lists numerous different studies that demonstrate that executive pay even more so in banking and the financial industry um bears no relation to the actual performance of a company and so if we believe in capitalism then actually what we're looking at is not not a a free market kind of free enterprise model of capitalism it is a crony capitalist model and and that i don't think either left or right would want to see continue.
1: This is really important and it's important for people on the right and it's very you know, it's encouraging from my point of view to hear you talking in this way. It's really important to understand the power relationships in this. So if you want to understand why chief executives pay themselves so much and it is by and large paying themselves and they sitting on one another's remuneration committees um, power is really important in the analysis. It's very hard and this is in a sense what Joe Stiglitz in his piece does. He says it's very hard to find any kind of economic rationale. There's a very simple power rationale which is that these people have the power to do it and they have therefore done it and people on the left have often thought about trying to think about power in the economy um, and it is the power of particular interests in the economy which have driven us in a certain direction and of course that then gets translated into political power because the regulatory frameworks are then dominated by lobbyists and others acting on behalf of powerful interests and that I think is a really important part of the analysis it's something people on the left have tended to have and not always people on the right and it's really nice to hear you talking in that way and then if you apply that more widely you then look at other parts of the economy or the other end of the labour market, if you like, and say, why is it that we have such a flexible labour market in which incomes are held down despite the fact that we have full employment? Again, many economists would say, we've got nearly full employment, wages should be rising, why haven't they been? Well, power comes into it. Workers used to be organized in trade unions, they used to bargain collectively so that an individual, where an individual worker didn't have much power, a group of workers do, and that enabled them to bargain for higher wages, and it's one of the reasons why, um, why the labour market has fragmented so much and wages are not, have been stagnating is because workers don't have enough power in the economy. That's a really important part of the analysis, I think.
0: And I'm I'm I am very struck by this idea, and I, I think there are probably also some pretty good historical arguments of where trade unions have not actually served their members particularly well. But that's that's probably for another discussion. So um, I'm conscious of time, um, and I wanted though to kind of pose, I guess, a a sort of bit of a challenge to say. Um, you know, there's an awful lot in the book. It's a fantastic read. I recommend everybody reads it. I think there's an awful lot that, you. you know, anyone of any any political uh, persuasion can, can really buy into and, and really does help understand how we've got to where we are. But, you know, we are where we are. There's an awful lot that could be changed. You know, politicians, governments are not going to be able to do everything. Um, and they're certainly not going to be able to do everything I- I within a kind of five-year parliament that we have in the UK. So, yeah, you know, if you were sitting in front of the prime minister right now, you know we know that she said she cares about these issues, um, though it's perhaps debatable she's doing anything about it. But that's another conversation. If you were sitting in front of her, what would be the three reforms to capitalism that you think would be most impactful?
1: Well, let's make it to the British form of capitalism because different countries have different forms of capitalism, and some of the things I'm going to recommend uh, are better done elsewhere. But
0: probably apply quite well to America, I imagine. Oh, indeed. In that form. So,
1: so let me give you three of three different types. So the first one is to cope with the long-term investment challenge. Um, We've discussed that uh, investment is not long enough uh, term, it's not looking long enough, uh, uh, decline of innovation and so on. I think we need now a national investment bank. I don't think if we leave the investment challenge simply to the private sector and to private finance houses and companies, we will get enough investment. I would like to see the state more active, and if I can add an extra half a policy to that, it would be Mariana Mazzucato's um, mission-oriented innovation policy. I'd like to see a a national investment bank investing in particular sectors of the economy that can meet some of these great challenges of the environment of demographic change and so on uh, that we face. Uh, The second one would be um, to give more powers to workers in the labour market. I think there's lots of things you can regulate the labour market better to do, but in the end I do think we need stronger trade unions, and I think we need to find ways of giving trade unions access to workers in ways that workers can say no if they don't like those trade unions. I think trade unions need to um, really represent workers well, but I do think in order to get wages up and to get better conditions, particularly in uh, the bottom of the labour market, we need stronger trade unions. And the third one is an idea we've been developing at IPPR on the Commission on Economic Justice, which is a citizen's wealth fund. Um, many countries have uh, sovereign wealth funds. Uh, they built up assets that they developed over time. I'd like to see the UK doing that. We should have done it when we had North Sea Oil, but we could still do it. Um, and we could then use the assets of a sovereign wealth fund to give everybody a wealth dividend, um, a payment as much potentially we think of as £10,000 uh, to every 25-year-old, which would give them a kind of dowry, an endowment uh, to enable them to have some wealth to set off in life with, and I think that would be a way of holding the wealth that this country has more in common and sharing it out in a way that would equalise wealth distribution to some extent and give everybody a better uh, uh, chance in life.
0: So I'm going to I'm going to have to ask a couple of questions then on that. Um, on the well, let's take a step back. So on the trade union one, you know, I guess the immediate question that, that comes to mind is how. How do you encourage more trade unionisation?
1: One of the ideas we're looking at is auto-enrolment. We've had a very interesting experiment in pensions, in which over the last few years we've required workers to be auto-enrolled, automatically enrolled into a pension unless they opt out. And they have every opportunity to opt out, and some people do. That's overcome a bit of inertia from people, and now more and more more people, many more people are in pensions now. Um, why not have auto enrolment into trade unions easy to opt out if you don't want to belong to a trade union you absolutely have the right not to but at least it would give trade unions a chance to say to workers you know this might be a benefit to you and it would give a, cha- a work, uh, trade unions a chance to access workers and persuade them whether or not where they, believe, uh, they agree with it, that it was worth joining a trade union.
0: But given inertia, um, which was the whole point of auto enrolment, will opt you in and then you're not going to be bothered to opt out, which does seem to be exactly what has happened. Is there not a risk that with that model you end up opting everybody in? They don't, you know, they don't, let's face it, particularly if you're in kind of low paid work. Perhaps quite chaotic work, etc. You know, you probably doesn't haven't got time to be reading up on exactly what your union's doing. Is there not a risk that actually you're just handing everyone over to unions, and and it's not really a choice there?
1: Um, well, there's definitely a choice an auto enrolment definitely has a choice. Uh, given that there'd be a payment. Do you you know you have to pay your union dues? It's not a free service. I think people would very quickly conclude whether or not they wanted to stay in the system, and the system would have to make it easy for them not just to opt out originally, but at any other point that they felt it wasn't worth paying their union subscriptions. I think the key point is unions now have very little access to a fragmented labour market, and we're never going to get wages up and, uh, and the kind of power for working people that would give them a chance to share better in the national income uh, if we don't get uh, give unions some access to them.
0: Well, and certainly um, we. Uh, James Bloodworth writes for us uh, and we uh, spoke to him a couple of weeks ago about his new book Hired and talking about the experience and the conditions of low paid workers in places like Amazon I mean it's just horrendous so I can certainly see that there would be benefit to I'm some type of model even if I'm not quite quite on board with the uh, opt out type model you're describing and then final question on the sovereign wealth fund where, where does the wealth come from where's the money coming from to
1: pay that so um, as I say it, the best for, uh, use of uh, The best form of wealth for a sovereign wealth fund uh, would have been the receipts that we got from royalties and and taxes from North Sea Oil, which we had for many years, which we by and large just gave to the the present generation as it was then, um, which was a a very odd way to use uh, uh, an endowment that was a national endowment for everybody. We used it for one generation instead of spreading it over time. We've still got, however, asset sales that are going on. If you look at the OBR, it's expecting a whole bunch of asset sales. Um, I would like to see wealth taxed better, and I'd like to see the proceeds of a wealth tax go into a sovereign wealth fund, which so effectively you had a form of wealth redistribution there, I think there are some other forms of, uh, of income that you could put into a sovereign wealth fund. You need to, It would take time to build it up. We don't envisage um, any payments out of a sovereign wealth fund for at least 10 years, but it's something which would enable wealth to be used for multiple generations and not simply the present one.
0: Well, I can certainly get on board with taxing wealth. Um, final question then so it does feel as we've touched on several times like you know there is a kind of moment uh we are 10 years on from the financial crash i think um we're all a little bit surprised at how long the shadow um has been even if as we talked about at the start a lot of the indicators of of kind of you know i guess underpinning problems were already there um it does feel like people are and people who maybe previously wouldn't have uh, challenge the current capitalist model are starting to do so. If I think about some of our core themes that unheard, so monopolisation, cronyisation, short-termism, kind of the sense of some form of economic justice, if we look at what's happened to social mobility, fairness, all those kind of questions, feels like there isn't a left-right issue there. So I guess um, briefly, uh, in a nutshell, kind of where next?
1: Well I think uh, this is a very interesting moment. If you look back at 20th century history, Um, there were two great paradigm shifts in economic thought and policy. After the uh, the Wall Street crash of 1929 and the depression of the 1930s. Um, policies failed, policies based on the old orthodoxy of laissez-faire failed. Keynesianism came in both as a new way of understanding the economy and then as a new set of policies and after the war you had a whole I- new era of economic policy based on Keynesian um, uh, and welfare state policy. That lasted about 30 years until it ran into problems in the 1970s with the uh, Bretton Woods system breaking down, the oil price rises, stagflation. At that point the Keynesian system didn't seem to provide good solutions anymore, and a new, what we now know as a free market or neoliberal orthodoxy took root, um, and uh, new policies were introduced in the, in the period from the 1980s onwards. That period in a way ended with the great financial crash of 2008, and since then you've had a similar phenomenon of the orthodoxy not working, not being able to produce solutions that restarted the, uh, the system, uh, the capitalist system with economic growth, with rising wages and so on, as we've been talking about. And it therefore appears to be that this might be a third moment when you need a paradigm shift and the really important striking characteristic of paradigm shifts is that the entire political spectrum shifts into the new paradigm so you still get differences between left and right in the 1950s in, in the 1980s and 1990s there are still distinctive positions but more or less everybody has shifted onto the new terrain in the 1950s of Keynesianism, in the 1980s, 1990s of a, of a uh, more neoliberal approach, even on the left and it is interesting that you and I are having this conversation now agreeing on many things, that's the sign of a paradigm shift, that's the sign of everybody shifting into new territory, it doesn't mean that there won't be arguments of left and right about how you distribute resources, who has the power, the role of the state, the role of trade unions, the as we've been discussing. But it does indicate that something profound, epochal, is happening. And I think that is what's happening now. And the task now, which our IPPR commission, you yourselves on unheard, are, are, are grappling with, is what are the policies that can affect uh, a shift in the way we think about economics and the way we practice economic policy.
0: Well, thank you very much. An awful lot there. Um, As I said earlier, I do recommend that people read the book, Rethinking Capitalism. Um, It is a very provocative, I think, uh, piece of work. Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you have enjoyed it. Um, And please do subscribe if you haven't already to the Unheard podcasts. Um, Thank you very much.